My definition of a hero is someone who takes the time to see and the effort to act on behalf of someone else. It doesn't require a title, no equipment, no superpowers, just attentive to someone beside yourself and willingness to act. Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today, we celebrate two heroes who not only courageously served in the United States military, but acted in true valor as they placed the lives of those they served above their own. Southwest Airlines pilot and retired Navy pilot, Captain Tammy Jo Schultz, and retired Air Force pilot and former Vietnam POW, Colonel Carlisle Smitty Harris. First up, in April 2018, Captain Tammy Jo Schultz was flying Southwest Flight 1380 when the left engine of the plane exploded. She safely guided the plane down with one engine and made a successful emergency landing. But before that day, Tammy Jo had spent years overcoming hurdles to achieve her dreams of being a pilot and shares how one particular trial in her Navy years may have given her the training that helped her save 148 lives. Well, I'm Tammy Jo Schultz. I live here in Bernie, Texas. I'm a wife and a mother and am blessed to be in this time in history and in this country. Also have had such an advantage in growing up in a wonderful home in New Mexico, cherished by my family and raised in a faith that there were no second-class citizens. So whenever I dreamed about what I wanted to do in life, I dreamed without fences. We did a lot of outdoor playing, I think, at the urging of my mom, even if we hadn't wanted to, but we did. It was just a lot of mud pies and pretending like we were pirates or we were getting away from pirates. And it was pretty simple, and yet it was wonderfully full childhood. Um, Our place was probably about 30 miles from Holloman Air Force Base as the crow flies. They would practice air combat maneuvering. And they needed a ground reference point, so they used our big hay barn. And that would be our daily air show while we were, you know, mucking out stalls or stock trailers of organic fertilizer. I would see that and just think, that looks fantastic. I mean, not only cleaner than what I'm doing, but it just looks really exciting. But thinking about something and seeing it from a distance, never having met anyone who did that, it still seemed pretty out of reach. And then I read a book called Jungle Pilot, which was about a Mission Aviation Fellowship pilot named Nate Saint. And that was my eighth grade summer before I went into high school. And it just made me feel like I could see aviation from behind a pilot's eyes. And so I felt like I kind of got to wrap my mind around it. And that was definitely what I wanted to do. When I I wrapped my mind around trying to get into flying and realized that I'd like to do military flying, I'd like to serve my country. And it was also a great way to learn to fly. And I went to career day and the colonel at career day said, well, this is career day, not hobby day. You need to go find something girls can do. And I was shocked because I'd grown up in a family that There was no lines drawn between what I did and my brother did. And so I was shocked that there were those lines in the the real world, so to speak. And after a few years at college, I saw a lady getting her Air Force wings at a winging. 
And so I went up and talked to her, and she, she told me how she'd gotten in through ROTC. I was a junior or senior in college, so it was too late for me to redo college in ROTC. I went to the Air Force, which said, no, you can't take the test. We're not giving you an application. We don't need girls. And so I waited for a different recruiter to be behind the desk a few days later, and I went in, and he said, no, we don't need girls. So I went and cut out the the advertisement in the, the newspaper because they were advertising, if you have your four-year degree and you want to fly, the Air Force wants you. So I cut it out and I went and the Air Force recruiter said, no, don't come back. If you have a brother, we're interested, but we don't need girls. And the Army just said, you are not a fit for us. And then the Navy said, sure, you can take a test. It took them a couple of years before I I could find a recruiter. It was about three recruiters later that I found one that would actually take my application. <laughs> so yes, it took a while to get through that, that fortified line. After getting my wings and going back to instruct for a couple of years for a great, a great skipper, he had a change of command and I had a new skipper come on board and I was getting ready to teach the advanced stages in T2, like gunnery pattern and things like that. And he pulled my gunnery pattern qual. Uh, I had done my test and everything to get ready to get my qual and he said, no. No girls are going to fly guns in my squadron. And there, was not, there wasn't girls. It was just me. Uh, but it was a very public shaming. And I was sent to teach out-of-control flight instead. And it was one of those things where it wasn't fair. But there are some times when we just have to take what's not fair and, and work around it. I realized, you know, I'm, I'm assigned to fly out-of-control flight, so I will just do it the best I can. And that actually was one of probably some of the best training I had in all my Navy experience was my year of teaching out of control flight. So I think part of that is learning not to be offended when you're not treated fair, but also just to reanalyze your own motives, your own merit. And my mom encouraged me on this. She said, take it to the Lord. Tell, tell the Lord on them and then pray for them because it's really hard to have the wrong attitude when you've laid it before the Lord and then you pray for them. That's one of the reasons he asks us to pray for people that don't treat us very well because he'll do with them, but dealing with us and our own heart in that situation is really the first step to overcoming it. When I first got to Southwest, I I realized that I have more of a responsibility as an airline pilot than I did as an F-18 pilot. I have responsibilities for other people's lives, not just flying the best aircraft I can, but also, I mean, how they're treated on board too. And, And that's not just the flight attendant's job. That's the whole crew's responsibility. April 17th, last year, Darren Elliser was my first officer. And we started in Nashville. We met the flight attendants, Rachel Fernheimer, Shanique Mallory, and Catherine Sandoval at the airplane for the first time. 
I try to make a habit of bringing coffee with me to the aircraft. It seems to bring everybody together faster than if I say, you want to get together for the captain briefing? <laughs> so we all met around some coffee and chatted about the, the day ahead, how far we were all going and, and what the weather was like, different things like that. And then we had a little time to chat about just where everybody was from or things like that. Catherine, she'd been at Southwest for six weeks on that day, so she was very new. And Shanique had come from being a customer service representative, I believe. And then Rachel had been flying for about four years, I think, for Southwest at the time. So then when we landed in LaGuardia, we had a little extra time in between flights. And we we got to chatting a little bit more and and realized a little bit more about each other before we took off. And it was planned for a four-hour flight. So Darren's turn to fly, we took off, and 20 minutes into the flight, passing through 32,500 feet, Darren and I, comparing notes months after it happened, we both thought we'd been hit by another aircraft. The jolt was so hard, and we were just uh, pushed sideways, and the aircraft went into a snap roll to the left. We both lunged for the controls and caught it going past 40 degrees angle of bank and righted it. And by that time, initially we had seen the engines, the number one engine rolling back, the instruments blinking and showing that that engine had exploded or wasn't any good anymore. And then we couldn't see anything and we couldn't hear anything because after the initial shock of it all happening and we're descending just because we're heavy and we we have this immense amount of drag now where the engine had peeled back something like a banana peeling and remained attached, but now those big pieces were flailing in 500 mile an hour wind. and. There was also such a shudder involved with that we couldn't focus on the engine instrumentation. And a cloud of smoke came in, probably from the exploded engine through the air conditioning system. And, you know, there's nothing to look at in the cockpit. I can't focus on anything. I can't communicate to anyone. And there's a stabbing pain in in my ears, and I can't breathe. So it was a kind of a, a forced moment of silence in that there was nothing I could really do. And I remember looking out the just the window straight ahead thinking, I'm not sure everything we need to fly is going to stay on. Um, I've never experienced anything quite like this. And if that's the case, then this could be the day I meet my maker. And you kind of have a mental rush doing this. Adrenaline kicks in and you can think so leisurely, but in such a tiny slice of time. And I remember kind of getting to that mental cliff of what if and thinking, if that's the case, and that's when I stopped and just stepped back and thought, I wouldn't be meeting a stranger. And I had that calm that just met let me know that's not really something I'm dreading. But on the good side, on the good news also is that we're still flying. And I'm not sure everyone feels the same way about it (laughs) that I do. So the good news is we're flying. We'll just get back to work. And by that time, the smoke had cleared out. We'd slowed down enough that we could see our engine instruments, read checklists, get our oxygen masks on, communicate a little bit. We'd told Philadelphia 
that we wanted to go to Philly. And then I communicated to the back because I thought as much as it's startling for us up here with control of things and seeing what's going on, it's got to be mind-numbing fright going on in the back where all you have is what's happened. You have no knowledge of what's going on. So I pushed my PA button and made a PA that said, It wasn't my most elegant PA, but it was that we're not going down. We're going into Philly because I wanted to know that the cockpit was still in control of the airplane. We had a plan and we had a destination. And at that point, that's when the flight attendants unbuckled and headed through an aisle that was so rough. They had sprained back, uh, bruised ribs, lacerations just from going down the aisle to to help people get their oxygen masks on and to tell them we're we're going into Philly. And it was a takeaway for me that that element of hope had such a change on people and their actions and their reactions. It didn't change our circumstances. Hope doesn't have to change our circumstances to change us. And so the flight attendants unbuckled, started telling people what our destination was. And it wasn't until they got even with row 14 that they saw where the breach in the cabin was and what had happened there. And there were three passengers that unbuckled, left their oxygen masks, their families to go towards an open, very dangerous window, not knowing if more would tear out. Tim McGinty Andrew Needham, and then later Peggy Phillips, a retired nurse, uh, unbuckled and came to do CPR on the passenger. And whenever we got closer to the ground, um, we had some issues to deal with that were new to us. The um, airplane, whenever I tried to add power and turn right, I wasn't able to. I had so much drag pulling to the left, and when I add power then that pushed us to the left, so there wasn't any turning right until I did something different. There was just this pause in the cockpit voice recorder whenever we listened to it, and then you hear my voice just asking, just in a question, two words, and it's Heavenly Father? And I didn't realize till then that it was out loud. I thought it was a private conversation. But Darren kind of teased me. He goes, I knew you were praying. I said, yes, all the way down. But I was thinking... Heavenly Father, what am I missing? I know we didn't wrestle with this for 30,000 feet not to be able to turn in the last 2,000 and make it to the runway. And just kind of having that mental breathing room in prayer, I realized, okay, uh, asymmetrical thrust is pushing me away. So I took off the thrust, turned around, and then added a little bit back in. We just weren't able to add much thrust because as we slowed down to land, that gives us less airflow over the rudder, which keeps our nose straight. So as I slowed down, I was only able to have less and less power available and got our gear down at the right amount of time so that we made the runway. And I was so impressed with the people on board, not just the heroes that I mentioned, but and my crew, which were all amazing heroes in this situation. 
but the the entire group of passengers when we landed there wasn't this angry frustration and surge for the doors i walked back to to reassure people help the flight attendants and everyone was calmly seated attentive to what we had to say and um when we told them we'd like for you to remain seated there's air stairs on the way but we do have a medical emergency we'd like to take care of her first if you'll remain seated everyone was so attentive and quiet and it just made me feel like everyone felt the value of human life that day and no one knew Jennifer and Jennifer knew no one on that plane but you don't have to know someone for them to have value and you know of course we were all glad that we had made the runway uh, but the survival of 148 will never eclipse the loss of one and we were thrilled to return 148 people to their lives and loved ones and it will always weigh heavy on our heart that we weren't able to do that for Jennifer there's a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance and that day really i feel like was the first day i understood those words readers of all ages can learn about tammy joe's new book nerves of steel now available for adults and young readers listen now as tammy reflects further on how god works in her life through prayer and devotion time and as she reads a passage from jesus calling i mean there are so many times that i've had incredible either answers to prayer and just witness some really cool things. Bible study time sometimes is separate from just morning devotions, morning quiet time. For me it is because I don't always have the time in the morning to have a full-blown Bible study. But I need that one-on-one with the Lord before I face the day, before I face other people. And so Sarah has made that such a warm and engaging time with the Lord. August 17th Sometimes events whirl around you so quickly they become a blur. Whisper my name in recognition that I am still with you. Without skipping a beat in the activities that occupy you, you find strength and peace through praying. My name. Later, when the happenings have run their course, you can talk with me more fully. Accept each day just as it comes to you. Do not waste your time and energy wishing for a different set of circumstances. Instead, trust me enough to yield to my design and purposes. Remember that nothing can separate you from my loving presence. You are mine. Stay tuned to hear the incredible story of Colonel Smitty Harris after a brief message about how you can start your Tuesday mornings in prayer with a community of believers during the Jesus Calling weekly prayer call. Did you know that Sarah Young, the author of Jesus Calling, prays for her readers each day? In that spirit, we want to extend the Jesus Calling prayer community out to you in a more personal way. Each Tuesday morning, you can dial into the Jesus Calling weekly prayer call, where the team from Jesus Calling and special guests will minister to us during a 10-minute call to reflect on that day's passage from Jesus Calling, read scripture references, and pray together for each other and our world. Prayer call times are 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Central, 6 a.m. Mountain, and 5 a.m. Pacific, and are for U.S. only. For more information on the Jesus Calling weekly prayer call or to submit prayer requests, please visit jesuscalling.com slash prayer dash call. Again, to join us in this community of prayer every Tuesday morning, please visit 
jesuscalling.com slash prayer dash call. Motherhood. It's a journey like no other, teeming with love, unparalleled dedication, and moments that pierce the very essence of your soul. It's a trek that demands to be celebrated, lauded, and embraced in its entirety. Celebrate the moms in your life this Mother's Day with two beautiful gift books, Jesus Calling for Moms by Sarah Young and Grace for the Moment for Moms by Max Licato. These heartfelt devotionals will remind the moms in your life just how special they are. Jesus Calling for Moms and Grace for the Moment for Moms are available now where all books are sold. During times of transition and unknown next steps, it's more important than ever to cling to the promises of God and to tune your ear to what Jesus has to say. Jesus Calling for Graduates is an encouraging compilation of 150 devotions from Sarah Young's brand. Grads will find topics such as discerning God's will, self-worth, trust, support, and much more. Jesus Calling for Graduates is perfect for both high school and college graduates as they embark on the next chapter. Look for our special custom edition of Jesus Calling for Graduates, available exclusively at faithgateway.com. When Air Force pilot Colonel Carlisle Smitty Harris was shot down over Vietnam on April 4, 1965, he had no idea what horrors awaited him in the infamous Hanoi Hilton prison. For the next eight years, Smitty and hundreds of other American POWs suffered torture, solitary confinement, and abuse. But in the midst of the struggle, Smitty remembered learning the TAP code, a World War II method of communication through tapping on a common water pipe. He covertly taught the code to many POWs, and the soldiers began to communicate about their shared love of God and country, which boosted morale as they endured their darkest days. Smitty begins his story by recalling the day he was shot down and captured. I had just dropped eight 750-pound bombs, and just as I bottomed out, uh, we were going pretty close to the speed of sound, uh, 600 miles an hour or so. Some lucky gunner um, shot at me, and the exploding round hit my engine area, which immediately knocked out my single-engine aircraft. And I knew I was in trouble. I tried to restart the engine. There was so much happening at the moment, I really couldn't think about anything except... I know I'm going to have to get out of this airplane. I had gone through the procedure many, many times in training. Pull the trigger, work perfectly, just as it had done in training. And the canopy goes, and about a half second later, the whole seat with me in it is shot up into the air, away from the airplane, with my survival gear, which included a dinghy, and of course I had was carrying a pistol and uh, other survival equipment, knife and whatnot, all went out with me. And my idea was escape and evasion. So I looked around for hills or trees or uh, ravines or anything where I could guide the chute. Uh, and maybe evade the enemy for a while, or maybe for good. 
But I looked down and I was right above a large Vietnamese village. And I was able to land just outside the village. I was met almost moments after uh, I touched the ground. I knew I was going to be in North Vietnam, perhaps for a long time. The North Vietnamese, they did a lot of things we didn't understand, but they pulled four of us out of solitary confinement and put us in a cell together. And later, a fifth joined us, Hayden Lockhart. Um, and I just knew the tap code and immediately said, we're going to have to communicate. Here is a way. So um, they all agreed. And not too long after that, several days or so on, we were put back in solitary confinement. And we used the tap codes successfully between us. But as time went by, our communication became so fast and so good, and we were interested in so many things between each other uh, and trying to find out information. We found out all about the lives of all the people around us, their kids, what they did, uh, when they were shot down, what aircraft they flew, or what carrier they came, were on. Just a lot of information about each other. But we also found out uh, a lot of our beliefs. It turned out that we were all Christian, and uh, we knew what day of the month it was, what day of the week. On Sunday, at first, we would just, one of us would thump the wall with her elbow, and it would make a, a thump sound that could be heard throughout that area. And we knew uh, we were going to observe some kind of Sunday service. And I think <clears throat> most of us at that time, if we could kneel, would kneel and say the Lord's Prayer and the Pledge of Allegiance and then whatever um, prayers we wanted to continue for as long as we wanted to continue. So that, that happened right off the bat. In the last couple of years that we were there, well, from I think it was late 69 till actually we were released. It was after the Sante raid when they closed all the small camps. It was the best thing that ever happened to us. The North Vietnamese panicked, I think. In three days, all the little camps that usually had about 50 POWs were emptied, and we all came back to the big Hanoi Hilton, big prison built by the French years ago. And we were put in cells of about 40 to 50 to a cell. Whoa, wasn't that nice to see friends and uh, set up a chain of command? And, and we used our time productively. We had classes in almost anything you'd want. There would be someone in that group. It was a pretty educated group. Probably um, all of 
everyone had at least a bachelor's degree and quite a few masters. Some had uh, taught at the Air Force Academy and so on. In the time that I was at the Hanoi Hilton in one of those cells, I learned three languages and could converse in German, Spanish, and uh, English, of course, and uh, French. But there we could, on Sundays, we could make a special thing of our church services. We knew that we could not make noises that could be heard outside our cell, or they got very upset. So we had a small choir who would sing quietly, and we would have someone who remembered Scripture and someone who would volunteer to give a little encouraging talk. Uh, we had a real church service. It was essential, I think, to our emotional health, too. The feeling of community and, and being a part of something bigger than yourself, of praying together. Uh, we made a positive out of what they tried to put us as a negative, that is solitary confinement and mistreatment. The hardest part about those eight years being away from my family was just that, being away from my family. I knew that Louise was soon to deliver our child after I was shot down and captured. And of course, we had two little girls that I adored. And we were a very tight-knit, loving family. And uh, I said prayers with the girls at night. Uh, I was a father. I helped discipline them when they needed it. But I don't mean punish, because that was unnecessary. They were good little girls, but they knew that mom and dad were in charge. And so it was just a, a loving family. And those relationships, I just missed so much. And particularly on special occasions like uh, wedding anniversary and holidays, Easter, Christmas, and I wondered how they were doing. I wondered a lot. Of, I found out that Louise had had a son, our son Lyle, and I wondered what kind of little boy he would be and uh, how the, he reacted with our daughters and so on. But it was just a total separation from all those family things that... Uh, really made my life so meaningful before I was shut down. When I got that first letter from Louise, I was really surprised because my cellmate, Bob Shoemaker, and I had been brought to an interrogation room and interrogated together, which almost never happened. And, uh, of course, we got the usual propaganda effort by the interrogator and he asked us if we would 
like to receive a letter from home. <laughs> of, of course, we were overjoyed at the possibility. And he singled out Shu and said, uh, he, I forget what they called Shu, but they used a little short syllables. I was Ha. He handed him, Bob, this letter from his wife and uh, dismissed him. And uh, he said, Ha, you do not get a letter because you have a bad attitude. I was just stoic. I, I didn't show emotion one way or the other. I expected bad things and got bad things, but I did not react to them. I never reacted to the North Vietnamese over any emotion or show of emotion that I could control. And so then I was released to go back to my cell. Shu showed me his letter, and uh, he was very happy, and I was very happy for them. I think it was several days later, they were getting ready to move us from that camp to somewhere else. I was called to interrogation, and there was no usual propaganda or questions or anything. He just handed me a letter and just missed me. It was my first letter from Louise, and in it was a picture of Louise in a sitting back in a big easy chair with a drink in her hand. <laughs> I was so tickled and cherished that letter and especially the picture. After Ho Chi Minh died, there was a huge national mourning, and we knew that because there was a speaker in every cell. But when he died, we noticed quickly, probably within one to three months, that we weren't mistreated as much. The torture, almost, the really phys bad physical pressure, almost stopped, so things were better. And also we were getting better food, a little more time outside, and uh, we heard over the loudspeakers that they were having peace talks in Paris. So we, we were pretty elated. And when they finally came in and pulled us all out and put us in trucks, we knew where we were going. The first time we had ever been moved with no blindfolds. An escort officer, American escort officer, they brought in on the plane, would turn us and we would march out to the airplane and get on. Never once showing the least bit of smile, even to the American officer because the North Vietnamese were seeing everything we did, and we wanted to show how much we did not think of them. So we got on the airplane and we sat down quietly, and the ramp finally came up on that big C-141, and it started taxiing out. We were quiet, we didn't smile, and as Shortly thereafter, during a climb out, we felt the big thump of the gear being retracted. 
and the whole plane erupted. We were yelling and screaming, jumping up, hugging each other because we couldn't before. But I think one of the most moving times was when we finally landed in the Philippines because we knew from our loudspeakers in our cells, we heard American voices talking about the anti-war movement in the United States and how our veterans had been treated. They came home and many times they were spit at and uh, they didn't want to wear their uniforms or people even know they were veterans. And so when we got off that airplane, we didn't know what to expect. We walked down that ramp and looked out. There were two or three thousand people waving banners. Uh, They had a huge, about three or four foot tall banner stretched out, welcome home. We weren't allowed to go out and mingle with them, but boy, that was our biggest emotional relief, I think. We were back on American soil, American Air Force Base, huge welcome, and would soon be back with our families. In celebration of veterans who have served in every branch of the military, Colonel Harris reads the November 11th entry of Jesus Calling. Do not let any set of circumstances intimidate you. The more challenging your day, the more power I place at your disposal. You seem to think that I empower you equally each day, but this is not so. Your tendency upon awakening is to assess the difficulties ahead of you measuring them against your average strength. This is an exercise on reality. I know what each of your days will contain, and I empower you accordingly. The degree to which I strengthen you on a given day is based mainly on two variables, the difficulty of your circumstances and your willingness to depend on me for help. Try to view challenging days as opportunities to receive more of my power than usual. Look at me for all that you need and watch to see what I will do. As your day, so shall your strength be. And that is so on hitting the nail on the head for me. After uh, Vietnam, I think my Outlook is different. I used to, uh, during my eight years over there, I developed a uh, communication with God, and I knew even in the darkest times when things were at their lowest, lowest ebb, I knew I could always pray, and I knew someone was listening that could do something about it. (laughs) He was there for me. You can learn more about Smitty's story, including the story of his wife, Louise, as she cared for their family back home, in the new book, Tab Code, available from your favorite book retailer today.
If you'd like to hear more stories about veterans and heroes, check out our interview with Chick-fil-A Foundation Executive and retired military serviceman Rodney D. Bullard. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we talk with author Sally Clarkson and her son, Nathan Clarkson. As a child, Nathan noticed that he learned and processed his emotions differently from the other kids around him, which made him feel isolated. But with his mother's support and God's love, he learned that his differences could actually be used for good. You know, the thing about feeling different uh, and realizing your difference, especially as a young kids, it can make you feel very alone. It can make you feel very different. And sometimes it can just make you feel bad or broken because you don't work like the rest of the world. And so it was an interesting thing to feel all these things and then look at the God from the Bible. And he's one of peace and love. And as I started digging in, even in the midst of my adolescent angst, I found a God who says he loved me as I was. And I found a God who said I was made for a purpose and that all these differences could be used for his glory and for the story that he wanted to tell with my life. Do you love hearing these stories of faith weekly from people like you whose lives have been changed by a closer walk with God? Then be sure to subscribe to the Jesus Calling Stories of Faith podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review so that we can reach others with these inspirational stories. And you can also see these interviews on video as part of our original web series, with a new interview premiering every other Sunday on Facebook Live. Find previously broadcast interviews on our YouTube channel on IGTV or on JesusCalling.com slash video.